That was Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, nicknamed the Pastoral. I'm Nick Pignataro, and this is Brewing Classical. Conversations about composers and conductors, and always over a cup of coffee. In this episode, we listen along to a groundbreaking work, Beethoven's Symphony No. 6, which not only contains a ton of beautiful and emotional sounds, but opens the door from the classical and pushes us right into the Romantic period. Beethoven 6 takes us happily to the countryside, to a serene brook, welcomes us to a happy dance of celebrating locals. Through a tempestuous storm and piccolo players, you won't want to miss out on this one. To a final gratitude that the storm has passed and the green countryside returns to peace. So grab your favorite mug, fill it with your favorite or closest brew, and join us, won't you? I start this conversation as I start all good conversations with a cup of coffee. Today, it's an organic Ethiopian Yerga Chefi. Actually, it's Target brand, the Archer Farms Organic Coffee, which I really think the Ethiopian Yerga Chefi is pretty delicious, especially whole moon and then roasted. And it says fair trade on the box. So by choosing the fair trade products, you're supporting a better life for the family farmers that, that are making these, they're growing these coffees. Here we are about to talk about Beethoven 6. And no conversation about Beethoven 6 is complete without first discussing absolute music and program music. Absolute music is music for music's sake, written by composers simply because, for no other reason other than to create art, which you can make the argument for all music, but program music is uh, music that is written ascribed to some sort of picture or some sort of story. That the composer has like an extra musical idea that, that is related and shown in the music. Beethoven's famous symphony number five, da-da-da-da, we consider that absolute music because there's not exactly a story that Beethoven told us about when he was writing it. But here, he does. Um, in program music, there is a story ascribed to the music. The sixth is unique in this way because um, Beethoven adds his own title and he calls it the Pastoral Symphony or Recollections of Country Life. Um, a lot of symphonies get titles um, and get nicknames. Usually they're not ascribed by the composer or they're, com they're ascribed after the composer dies. Like Mahler One is the Titan Symphony and, and, and Mozart's 44 First symphony is nicknamed Jupiter. Mahler II is Resurrection. And these are often come to us um, after the composer dies. But again, Beethoven chooses here. He chooses here to add a title. And he probably gets this inspiration from his walks in Vienna parks. He lived in Vienna in modern-day Austria. He enjoyed parks and he enjoyed nature and he hated summer in the city. So he'd often go to a suburban village or a spa for part of the year. And this opening of the symphony alludes to that cheerful feeling of being in, in the countryside. So we listen quickly to the first movement, the beginning, awakening of cheerful feelings upon arriving in the country. This is Sir Simon Rattle and the Vienna Philharmonic. Thank you. 
besides that the melody is sort of lilting and very relaxed sounding, it's not very aggressive like that fifth symphony. Da 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 da. There's a drone. This long F that's just being played by the cello, and then the A that's being played by the viola. Just a vum. Reminds us of bagpipes, or actually their Italian ancestor, the Zamponias. The bagpipes or the Zamponias, they, they, when the player plays, they inflate the bag with a rum, and then the sound starts to happen, or then the notes start to happen. So this drone, this underlying tone that happens, is very, very, very common in classical or romantic composers signifying like the country or the folk. We also hear just these really unhurried melodies. Nothing is rushed. Nothing is frenetic. Let's go back and listen for that drone and then also listen for this unhurried melody. But there are some really crucial things to recognize with Beethoven symphonies. First, the exposition. There's three main sections in a first movement in sonata form symphony. First, the exposition, followed by the development, and then lastly, the recapitulation. Um, the exposition sort of gives you two main themes with some transition material. The development really takes all of those themes and manipulates those and changes keys and uses fragments. It's almost a fun game to, to see how many different ways that a composer can recycle tunes and reuse them um, from the exposition. And then finally the recapitulation. But thinking first of the exposition, in the closing section at the top of page 8, we hear these da-dum, da-dum, these fourths, these falling fourths, meaning notes that are an interval of a perfect fourth. That is really typical of classical slash romantic composers indicating nature. They're considered one of the most natural um, intervals in all of music history, which is partly why in the mid middle, you know, middle Ages, uh, a lot of chant music was written in fourths and fifths. Let's give that a listen. Also really beautiful, uh, at the bottom of page 22 in our score is the closing section, sort of the coda of the entire movement. This, again, is those falling fourths, but composers often will, um, or sorry, conductors will often take this section at different tempos. So there's a problem with Beethoven symphonies and tempos, and also the repeat signs. Composers uh, and are not exceptionally clear, especially Beethoven wasn't, as to what he wanted when it came to tempo of the music, the speed of the beat, and also the repeat sign. So conductors are um, 
there's a big battle about this with through conductors. Some always take the repeats at the exposition. Some never take the repeats. Uh, some follow the tempo markings and some completely ignore the tempo markings. Tempo markings at the top of Beethoven symphonies are kind of uh, difficult to uh, historically qualify because we believe that Beethoven wrote in tempo markings toward the end of his life. He went back and rewrote all tempo markings into all of his symphonies, which he never had done. And this was after a lot of them had been played. And by this time, he was famously a very deaf. So we're just not sure if these tempo markings were exactly what he wanted. And we're just not sure if that's if that's what it was. Simon Rattle, and the hear this recording of the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, Simon Rattle is known for sometimes twisting uh, a composer's intent just a little, but making us, the listener, really believe in what he says. And I actually believe in this interpretation. It's not written in the score, but you'll notice instead of those would be the you know those would be the the triplet sounds in this. He slows it way down, and he just makes this delicious choice. I think to really bring out Beethoven's romantic emotion. Again, my preference, perhaps Simon Rattle's preference, but there's a lot of conductors out there that would completely disagree with me. Interestingly, in this symphony, the second movement is also in sonata form, the sort of the slow movement of the symphony. Um, it signifies a babbling brook because it's called or titled Seen by the Brook. It ends very beautifully and very quietly with three famous bird calls, which are actually written into the score. First, the flute sounds as a nightingale, the oboe sounds as a quail. And then two clarinets sound as the cuckoo bird. And Berlioz uh, later copied this in his Symphony Fantastique. And actually, Respighi literally used bird sound recordings in uh, the Pines of Rome, which we'll talk about later. But this is the end of the second uh, movement, seen by the brook. The form of this symphony is a little different than is typical in this time period. Typically, there are four movements in a symphony, kind of an allegro or a quasi-fast movement at the beginning, a slow movement, 
then a minuet and trio, perhaps a scherzo as a third, and then a big finale fourth. This uh, work has five movements, and the last three are completely continuous. This is atypical. Um, again, the scherzo is usually the third of four movements. Of course, it's the third of, of five at this point. And this is called the Merry Gathering of Peasants, or it's sort of a symbolic of a countryside wedding with a countryside band that plays their instruments rather poorly. This scherzo stems from the ABA form, meaning sort of the same, different, same form of a minuet and trio, uh, which Mozart and earlier composers would have completed. Scherzo in German typically alert, uh, alludes to a joke, and the angularity of this rhythm is usually the joke. The angularity of the rhythm and the melody makes us kind of jump up and down in our seats as we listen. Beethoven prominently writes for French horn, which we just typically call the horn. So these horns are also a hunting instrument, would have been recognized as a hunting instrument. Another way composers like the drone would symbolize uh, nature. So they try to emulate a town band with simple melodies and it reminds us of nature. Again, the hunting sounds of the scherzo movement. Again, continuous, this fourth movement is a called Tempest, comma, storm. And it is a storm. It indicates that a storm has come across the countryside. And this is the big moment for the piccolo. And the piccolo player in an orchestra typically sits there until it's time to play. Um, it actually, they have to sit on stage for the entire time, nearly two-thirds of the 40-minute symphony. But they get this big, wonderful moment. Common addition of the piccolo at this time period, uh, and also the added trombone in the fourth and fifth movement, these were sparingly used instruments, um, and they indicated some sort of move toward the romantic, where orchestras got larger and they were including more instruments than they did in Mozart's time. And Beethoven barely used the trombone in this, only a little bit in the fourth and fifth movement, but it's to add emphasis. He also adds a trombone in the fifth symphony, um, of course this sixth symphony, and you hear it at the end of the famous choral symphony, the ninth symphony. The runtime of this symphony, the sixth symphony, is about 40 minutes long, and Beethoven writes for a piccolo, two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, two bassoons, two horns, two trumpets, two trombones, a timpani player, and strings. 
So this is a pretty typical instrumentation uh, for the classical period, except those trombones and piccolo, like we just said. But as this, they use all these instruments changing from the Tempest right to the Shepherd's Hymn, happy and thankful feelings after the storm. Again, the music flows right in, and there's a really clear drone in the viola and cello, just like at the opening of the work. The Shepherd's Hymn, perhaps uh, someone who is joyously out in the fields with their sheep or, or whatever they're guarding, um, there's the quaint picture of the shepherd playing a horn and sort of soothing all the animals and, and on a hillside. And, and perhaps you can imagine that the storm has passed and there's just rain droplets and they're slowly drying and the sun is coming out. Perhaps there's even a rainbow. And this image, the shepherd image, is usually associated with some sort of like a woodwind instrument, particularly the clarinet, the horn, and the English horn. Though there's no English horn in this, um, in this opening solo, uh, we hear a massive solo, really famous in, in the last movement, or sorry, the last act of Tristan and Isolde by Richard Wagner. Anyway, there's called the, it's called the Shepherd Solo, and they sort of play uh, this English horn. Well, Beethoven arguably did it first uh, with these solo melodies at the beginning of the movement. We have this return of the fourths where the melody includes that perfect fourth over and over and over again. Again, over the drone with the shepherd's instruments reminds us of nature. Beethoven uh, flexes his composer muscles here as he adds a bit of theme of variation. So you remember the musical theme, the melodic theme from the beginning of this movement. He then puts it in all the other instruments, this time with running circuitous 16th notes. typical of symphonies at this time was a really quiet ending. 
it makes sense that if there's happy and cheerful, you know, or happy and thankful feelings after the storm, that nobody's going to be exceptionally aggressive. Um, but this is how the symphony ends. You'll notice, though it ra it calls for rousing applause. Uh, because of the beauty within, most composers choose to write a bombastic finish. It brings the audience to their feet. Well, here, Beethoven says that the merits of his music need no bombastic finish. I think the finish is extremely fitting for the entire symphony. section of our episode uh, with a part called subito. Subito often comes before a dynamic marking in music where you might say subito piano, subito forte, or whatever. Uh, and that usually means we falsely interpret it as suddenly. But in reality, subito more realistically translates to right now. So with guests, we'll be able to ask them seven quick subito questions. But for now, subito is what's going on in the world in classical and regular music. Um, subito. The Philadelphia Orchestra played its so far final performance of 2020 to an empty Verizon Hall back in March, and they actually played these two, well, Beethoven's fifth and then sixth symphony. David Patrick Stearns of the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote that the concert's plan B, which fell into place that same day, had the performance going forward to a nearly empty house. It was streamed on Facebook, and now we can watch it over and over again on YouTube, and it was later streamed or later performed on WRTI radio and a WHYY TV telecast. We rehearsed the program and we were gearing up to play it. First associate concertmaster Juliet Kang told the David Patrick Stern's intermission after playing Beethoven's fifth. 
She said that they had to play it. It was an artistic imperative from the inside. The emotional whirlwind everybody's in, she says, it came through in the piece. She said it did for her, and she could feel the struggle of Beethoven. David Patrick Stearns writes, In Philadelphia, Beethoven boomed, growled, and stormed with exceptional urgency. Yet this was not the end of the world Beethoven heard from European radio archives when empires were crumbling during World War II. Nor was there the hopelessness felt at the Philadelphia Orchestra's post-9-11 concert at the Mann Center in 2001. The current adversary is an invisible virus, not a fallen hero or an act of war. Thursday's concert, he said, had exceptional momentum, as if to say, we will get through this. Beethoven's usually genial symphony number no. six, Pastoral, had higher peaks of tension and release than usual, with an aggression in the third movement peasant dances that led more logically than usual into the storm scene that followed, as if Neze Sagan, who is the music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra, conducted it as an opera without words. In another story, returning to work for sometimes forgotten heroes, the stagehands, the florists, the ushers, and other professionals. These people are were looking to really work with the officials to make the guidelines they gave us for reopening actually viable. This was a rally that these types of uh, behind-the-scenes concert workers had in Philadelphia. They say, we know how to put on safe events. What they need to be done right now is to do it right. And we just want to sit at the table and get our voices heard. Another goal, they said, is to depoliticize mask wearing. The Friday rally featured several speakers from the industry, including Michael Barnes, president of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees Local 8. The live event industry was hit first. It was hit hardest and will be the last to return. He speaks on the coronavirus pandemic. Barnes said, we are an integral part of the economy and deserve to be supported like every other sector. The event included with a parade around Philadelphia City Hall and mass workers rolling their road cases and cheering. Barnes said he was proud of the coalition's diversity and sense of unity. As a reminder, these are people that are backstage at all classical music concerts. He said, we're made up of women, men, of every ethnicity, of every religion, of every sexual orientation. We are separate fingers on the same hand, he said during the rally. What we are going to do today is bring those fingers together into a tight fist and fight for what we need to get us to the other side of COVID-19. Christopher Herbert recently found a group of sisters listed in the Ephrata Codex, which was a group of people near Lancaster in Pennsylvania, and he discovers and believes that these are the first known female composers in America. Ephrata, which is located in central Pennsylvania near Lancaster, was home to a mostly celibate religious commune that reached its peak in the mid-1700s, when Sister Phoban, Sister Keturah, and Sister Hannah lived there, and the commune was founded by a radical religious pietist named Conrad Beisel. Christopher Herbert, who is from Juilliard and did the research, said he had a very unique view of theology. This is Beisel. He believed that God was divided into two genders and that women should marry the male side of God, which was named Jesus, and that men should marry the female side of God, which is named Sophia. And because of this relationship, there was encouragement for celibacy. Free of the constraints of childbearing and childrearing, the brothers and sisters of the commune were encouraged to produce creative works like hymnals, music compositions as a means of religious devotion. By writing the music, they were professing their faith, Herbert says. 
It's just devotional, simple music, he says, not trying to be frilly, not trying to be ostentatious, simply existing for the sake of a religious experience. The only women we know of today who were composers often were in specific situations in which they were given the opportunity to even have credit for their original work, Herbert says. And in the Americas, it was a complete anomaly for women in the colonies to be credited for any kind of creative work. This story is from NPR News, and they end with, with the recording of these early compositions on Voices in the Wilderness, Chris Herbert brings us a step closer toward recognizing the contributions of women in the history of American music. Next time, as I welcome our first ever guest, Dr. Michael Accurso, who is the music director at Holy Name of Jesus Cathedral in Raleigh, North Carolina, in addition to his role as music director for the entire Diocese of Raleigh. Dr. Accurso shares his personal story learning and performing Handel's most famous work, Messiah, an oratorio including one of the most famous movements in music history, the Hallelujah Chorus. That's Dr. Accurso and Handel's Messiah next time on Brewing Classical. Brewing Classical grew out of COVID-19 stay-at-home restrictions when all of us needed just a bit of music to get through the day. My hope is that you took your mind off your everyday life during this episode and are a little bit refreshed and more ready to face the next day. The professional recording in this episode is from Warner Classics, Sir Simon Rattle conducting the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra called Beethoven Symphonies. Special thanks to the Strathaven students who challenged me to make this podcast and willed it into existence. Theme music for this episode was written and produced by Cecilia Olszewski, Jessica Orr, and Matteo Machado. I thank Miss Kate Plows for her tireless support and reminder that the world always needs more storytelling. Thank you, dear listener, for spending a little time with us. Be sure to rinse out your mug and let it dry for the next episode of Brewing Classical. Goodbye. <laughs>